Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. So far in this class, we have stuck to classic apologetics topics like reasons for God's existence, the historicity of the resurrection, and the rationality of Christian epistemology. Now we are going to shift gears to do some work on worldview. One of the reasons Christianity appeals to someone is how it works. In other words, from inside a Christian worldview, life makes sense. We understand where the world came from, how it got corrupted, what God has already done to remedy the situation, and what he still plans to do in the future. This four-stage meta-narrative provides us with a framework to understand not only history, but also our place in the world. Today, we'll focus on just the first half of the biblical narrative, creation and fall. And next time, we'll cover the second half, redemption and restoration. Here now is episode 394, Why Christianity Part 7, Meta-Narrative Part 1 with Daniel Fitzsimmons. Tonight I'm going to be talking about uh, what a meta-narrative is and how it relates to uh, our Christian faith and uh, specifically creation and the fall. So a meta-narrative is an overarching story or storyline that gives context, meaning, and purpose to all of life. You're probably familiar with uh, many of them. Each of us have meta-narratives, whether or not we know that or whether or not we articulate that, but it's basically a way that we make sense of the world. Uh, a worldview. A few examples of meta narratives we have Marxism, that, that can be used as a meta narrative. So, society is driven by class struggle and triumph over the oppressors. There is its opposite capitalism, where history and, and our social conditions and circumstances can be viewed through the lens of you know, globalism, ownership of private property, that kind of thing. Uh, we have um, nihilism, life is meaningless, morality does not exist. There's nothing for us but the sweet embrace of death. It's, it's charming. <laughs> and then you have religions, and they sort of, um, so if, if, if Marxism, capitalism, and nihilism are, are sort of more social ways to, ways to understand our world socially, religion in its various forms takes a more comprehensive view. So typically religions will have an origin story, where we came from, what our purpose is. That's true for Buddhism. So life's about, in, in, in Buddhism, just to, a little synopsis, life's about achieving enlightenment through cycles of suffering and rebirth with the end destination of achieving transcendence or state of nirvana. In Islam, uh, all humans will be judged by their good and bad deeds and ultimately consigned to paradise or hell. There's uh, atheism and agnosticism. There, either there is no God or if there is one, he is unknowable. Um, that's a way to process the world and, and, and what's going on around us. It's quite, quite a popular one. And then there's... Um, Enlightenment, emancipation, or uh, scientism. Jerry talked about that, I think, in one of the previous sessions. That's the idea that with the Age of Enlightenment, it ushered in a new reality where we don't have to make up stories to explain our existence. And any question that we have, could possibly have about our existence, you know, can be answered through studying science, and it's the only objective way to um, interpret our reality. So those are some examples of meta-narratives. It's certainly not an exhaustive list. It, um, 
just goes through some of the more popular ones that people have probably heard of. So why are meta-narratives useful? Why do, we, why do we gravitate towards them? Anybody have a suggestion? Shelby? I would say um, to find purpose. Yeah. To get the why. Yeah. Anybody else? A way of understanding your world. Yeah, for sure. Yes, they, they provide um, structure to our existence. So if you believe in a religion, your meta-narrative explains where you came from. If you're an atheist or an agnostic, you don't have to worry about the big questions. Just live your life because, you know, God doesn't exist. They also explain why things are the way, the way that they are, right? So, like, without a meta-narrative, how do you make sense of uh, history? How do you make sense of the present? How do you look into the future to see where things are going? They provide a lens through which to see and interpret the world. So if you're a communist, you may believe, or a Marxist, you may believe that suffering exists because the ruling capitalist classes uh, subjugate humanity for their own benefit. It, um, if you're a capitalist, you might say that market forces and increasing globalization have made life better for everyone on average. Um, a nihilist might believe that everyone is selfish and just trying to get by on this big dumb rock. <laughs> and for all these reasons, meta-narratives are comforting. Without meta-narrative, we might be overly preoccupied with making sense of the world around us. Can you imagine if you, as I said before, everybody has a meta-narrative, right? Whether or not you know it. If you didn't, the absence of a meta-narrative, what would you be thinking about? What, where, where would your mind constantly be? What am I doing? Why do I exist? What is going on, you know? But we have these meta-narratives that constantly play in the background and they sort of smooth over that anxiety. We don't have to constantly be thinking about these things because, as I said, if you're an atheist, you don't have to worry about it. The answer is to have no answer. It's, uh, God doesn't exist, so I don't have to worry about the future. I can just enjoy my life and come up with my own purpose. Um, every meta-narrative is uh, subject to criticism, right? and they all compete with each other. Uh, and many of them oppose each other. Like, you can't be a free market capitalist and a Marxist because they're op opposing ideologies. They compete for prominence as the best explanation for our existence and our circumstances, and each meta-narrative is subject to critique. Um, so, with Marxism, you could say that it led to communism, which history has shown us does not work, at least in the purely Marxist sense of achieving a classless society. And um, communism is also responsible for a significant amount of oppression. We see that in history. Rampant capitalism is a major driver of uh, economic inequality and other issues around the world. Um, Nihilism, atheism, agnosticism, they offer no solution or hope for our continued existence. The answer is no answer. So these are criticisms of these meta-narratives. Believing purely in science cannot satisfactorily explain our origins. We had a prior session where we talked about the uh, cosmological uh, likelihood of life existing on Earth and how insanely um, small the odds of that just randomly happening. Evolution might be accepted as a um, theory for, for most people and taught in schools, but it's not, for us, for our faith, it's not a satisfactory answer as to how we got here. And it doesn't even seek to answer 
why we're here or what our purpose is. It, it can't. I mean, you can't, you know, do some tests in a lab and then be like, well, our purpose in life is this, you know? And then religion is, is subject to its own uh, criticisms. It's a human construct used to control people. Uh, it's used to ease our anxiety about uh, not knowing where we come from or what we're doing here. That's pretty much the standard uh, critique of, of any religious meta-narrative. So what is the Christian meta-narrative? In Genesis 1, uh, the second verse, we read that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. We have essentially what is a blank canvas, right? Nothing exists. God said, I'm gonna make light, I'm gonna make water, I'm gonna make earth, vegetation, animals. He basically um, spoke it into being, we read. There was nothing and then there was something. And then in Genesis 1, uh, 26, we read, uh, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So God gets done with, like, think about this. God gets done with creating the earth, the heavens, the waters, the firmament. We read about uh, vegetation, plants, all this beautiful stuff. But his crowning achievement, the last thing he does is he creates man. The whole point of the environment that he created. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So we see here God's heart. He made this, he made this environment, he made the world, he made the earth, he made the fish, he made the plants, he made the vegetation, our environment, the air that we breathe, the sun uh, that sustains us, the moon. He made all of this for us, for, for humans. And this is his glorious tapestry, his glorious painting that he created for us. And this was his plan for, for us to live in it. He's given us every plant yielding seed, every tree with seed in its fruit, food. It literally, you put a, you put a seed in the ground, food comes out of it. Like, it's, it seems silly, but like, or we take it for granted rather, but like what other, what other thing like that exists? God, God made that for us. Like with bananas, you don't even have to do anything. <laughs> like with so much fruit. Like, I mean, you can, you can cook them if you want. Apples, you can make apple pie if you want, but you can just go up to a tree, particularly in New York, pick an apple off a tree and eat it. That's, if, if you really contemplate it, it's, it's pretty uh, mind-blowing. <clears throat> ah, so what happened? We call it the fall. How did we get where we are today? Wars, poverty, sickness, famine, corruption, evil. How did it go from 
this beautifully crafted, lovingly crafted design to you know, what we have today. There's beauty in the world, but it's certainly not as God intended it. Not even close. So we read in um, Genesis 3, we read that uh, sin entered the world after the serpent, the devil. He opened Eve up to temptation. God had told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the tree that knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. And God meant what he said. He was, he was truthful in what he said. That is eventually what happened. But the devil, quite cunningly, said that actually, God knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's funny that the devil's, what the devil said to Adam and Eve contained a, a, a grain of truth. You would think that it, um, reading that record, literally, you would think, oh, you eat the fruit, you're poisoned, and you die, right? Right away. But that's not, that's not what God meant when he said you will surely die. So the devil was quite cunning in the way that he, that he crafted um, his deception towards Eve. So then we read in um, Genesis 3, verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We pretty much all know this story, right? The creation story. I want to think about it in terms of the idea in the first half of the presentation of, of the meta-narrative. This is, this is the story that we've chosen to believe, with good reason, we believe, of how we got to our present state. It's our grand unifying theory. <clears throat> because what happened after Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was the curse. In Genesis 3.16, God tells the woman, Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's amazing that in two chapters it went from this beautiful design to where we are now and where it picks up in, in Genesis 3. Of It's like when you're watching a movie and right off the bat a crazy plot twist happens and that's what happened here. And to the man, he said in verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What do these two curses have in common? Pain. That was never part of God's original design. Death. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Pain and death. That was the result of the curse. The genesis of all evil and suffering can be traced back to the choice that Adam and Eve made in the Garden of Eden. In the very next chapter, we see their firstborn son, Cain, kill their secondborn son, Abel, right off the bat. Following books of the Bible are filled with the effects that sin had on the world, the wickedness that pervaded the earth, the flood, God's covenant with Abraham, the founding of the nation of Israel, everything that happened in the Bible and after the Bible, the hidden, you know, prehistory, and, and, and then when we start having records, we see, what do we see? We see a massive amount of conflict, 
Only, only in the last, you know, however many centuries or century, like the standard of living is particularly in the United States, one of the first world countries has been raised. But before this, for all of history, I mean, life was really, really hard. And life still is hard, but we see throughout history just struggle and turmoil, pain and death, suffering. And that those circumstances are directly a result of, of the fall of what happened. This is our meta-narrative. This is, this is how we explain where we are today. God originally made us in his image. Sin corrupted our nature and led to our fallen state. Our bodies are corrupt. Life is defined in many ways by suffering and toil. So what is the Christian meta-narrative? God created the world and all that is within it. God's original design was that we'd be together in paradise, living in harmony with him, the land, and the animals. Through original sin, the fall, both man and earth became corrupted, and the consequences of sin endure to this day and created the need for redemption. Those four bullet points, thankfully, aren't the whole story. <laughs> the meta-narrative continues. Um, that's not my job to present, but that we'll, we'll deal with that shortly. Um, and praise God, right, that that's not where the story ended. So why is it useful to have in your mind what the Christian meta-narrative is? How could that help you in talking to people about the gospel and about your faith? We said that everybody has a meta-narrative, right? That every meta-narrative is susceptible to criticism. So is it possible for you to take your meta-narrative, your, your Christian faith, with other elements of, of things that we're learning in this class and throughout your walk? You know, apologetics. Sean talked last week about um, the resurrection. All of this stuff that we're talking about, the reason for this class, why Christianity? It's designed to get you to be able to talk about why you think your meta-narrative, why the Christian faith is a better explanation for how we got here, what our purpose is, and where we're going. It could be used to challenge people on their meta-narrative. So I wanted to um, read Romans 5 here. This is a really good sort of um, summary in the New Testament of the Christian meta-narrative from the Bible itself. Um, we don't use that word, Sean pointed out before, we don't use that word meta-narrative. The Bible doesn't use that word meta-narrative. But if you read through it, you, you see like that's, you know, that's what it is. Uh, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 
For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for, and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I know I said a moment ago that it wasn't my job to explain the other half of the meta-narrative, but I just couldn't resist putting that in there because it was such a, good, such a good summary of this meta-narrative and that there's hope. That's one great thing about our meta-narrative among, among many is that there's hope. You know, nihilism, atheism, agnosticism, that doesn't offer hope. Other religions can offer hope, but you have to choose what you believe, and you have to stand by those beliefs, and you have to learn, and you have to be able to defend your faith, as Paul said. Always being ready to give an answer. One more verse here um, from Romans 8, 18 to 21. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is an even more succinct summation of, of our meta-narrative. And it links it to the present, what our hope is. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The creation was subjected to futility, toiling, working the earth, pain and childbearing, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I found in putting this together that it's uh, just being able to have these quick snappy summations of why I believe what I believe. It's a really good way to, and I've, and I've used uh, stuff like this before, it's a really good way to just get a conversation going. Sean has mentioned this before about when you're talking with people, you're out in your, you're out in your everyday life, and these things kind of come up. They have a way of coming up on their own, of, of asking the big questions. Because everybody kind of like, even though we have our meta-narratives that are keeping our like existential anxiety <laughs> under lock and key, we still have, uh, there are still times in our, in our lives, in all our lives, uh, tragedy strikes, you know, you think about the big questions, mortality, you start to get older, you think about the big questions. There's opportunities everywhere to talk about this and to challenge other people's meta-narratives in love. You know, you're not gonna be screaming at somebody about how your meta-narrative's better than theirs. Um, but, yeah, in everyday conversation, the checkout line and talking with your colleagues, your friends. Opportunities to talk about this stuff abound and having it down pat in your, in your heart uh, is a really useful way to uh, spread the gospel. Well, that brings this part to an end. Next time, we'll get into the other half of the meta narrative found in the Bible and look at redemption and restoration. But as far as creation and fall goes, what did you think? Uh, we would love to hear your thoughts, your questions, your feedback at restitutio.org. Just come online and find episode 
394, Why Christianity Part 7, Meta Narrative Part 1 with Daniel Fitzsimmons, and we would love to hear your thoughts. When I consider this topic from my own Christian point of view, it really clicks with reality. The fact that on the one hand, our world is just brimming with beauty, from mountains to sunsets to just the way water moves in a lake or the waves crash on a beach or the beauty of my wife or babies or just the joy that comes from hard work or exercise or eating. I mean, our world is just so full, the enjoyment of a hot shower. Our world is just so full of goodness and really abundant goodness that that isn't necessary for survival, okay? I think the evolutionary worldview really sells the human experience far short. Uh, but the goodness of our world, you know, the, the satisfaction of a long friendship and being able to reminisce with someone about events that happened when we were kids, just the experience of laughter and what that does to us, the celebration of someone's achievement or getting married or whatever, there's just so much. Our human experience, they're so rich with goodness, and uh, it's really hard to account for so much excessive goodness if the world is sort of cobbled together, self-made through duct tape and not a prayer, as the naturalist hypothesis would put it forward. I, I would expect the world on naturalism to be the sort of place where survival is possible, but all this superfluous goodness wouldn't be here. Uh, and so I, I think the Christian worldview that there's a good God who's behind everything from the double helix of DNA to the fact that our sky on a nice sunny day is that gorgeous blue and, and the moving masterpiece of clouds painted across the canvas of the sky is so beautiful from day to day. You know, this really makes more sense that a good God created the world, and the sort of God who is not stingy, the sort of God that doesn't give us one kind of tree, one kind of animal that is on all fours, one kind of flower. No, I mean, there's just ridiculous abundance in our world. Uh, But then the other side, I don't want to ignore the other side. The world is still also full of tragedy full of suffering, where we have anything from human evil, like murder, like lying, gossiping, adultery, theft, these kinds of things we do to each other that really just rob us of our joy and plunge us into despair at times, the loss of loved ones. How about mosquitoes or poison ivy or any number of problems that we face I always think of the go try to live out in the woods for a day test and see how well you do. Uh, You know, if you don't bring a tent and you don't bring a knife and you don't bring some way to make fire, I'm going to tell you, it's it's, it's a little tough. It's a little tough to make it out on your own, especially if you don't have a lot of survival skill training. Uh, Just a natural person out on his own uh, really is not going to make it that long before 
you have severe problems setting in. So our world is full on the one side of just excessive goodness and excessive badness. And why I, and I appreciate this presentation by Fitzsimmons here, why I so appreciate that one-two punch of the Christian meta-narrative of creation and fall is that it accounts for both the goodness in the world, the systemic goodness, as well as the systemic badness in the world. That our world is at once the masterpiece of a brilliant, loving creator, and at the same time, the disaster brought about by rebellion and the downward spiral of consequences resulting from that initial rebellion that infected not only our relationship with God, but creation itself being subjected to futility as a result. So uh, I really find that satisfying. Sometimes I think of it as fingerprints, that as detectives we analyze our world and we find on it two sets of fingerprints, the fingerprints of God and the fingerprints of the devil. And uh, I don't want to give the impression that the devil is equal and opposite to God, far from it. Uh, But we do see a world of excessive violence. I mean, if you just look at the different wars over the last hundred years, I think it'll blow your mind. Something like two wars a year on average for a hundred years straight. That is bizarre, ladies and gentlemen. That is that is bizarre. Why are people killing each other at that rate? Why is our world so full of vitriol and polarization and hatred? I went into a coffee shop yesterday in a city nearby where I like to go, And I was met with a man who, when he found out that I am a pastor, immediately started to question me about my faith. And the first question he asked was, well, do you actually have to believe in God in order to be a pastor? I said, of course. At least in the group I'm in, you have to. Uh, But that's pretty standard. And he said, what about all these right-wing Nazis? Christian, so he's calling Christians Nazis. And I pushed back a little bit on that, you know, not really knowing this guy or having time. I was actually cashing out and I was trying to leave. But, you know, I was happy to engage him a little bit and just see where it went. And I said, you know, you, you, you might have ideological enemies here, but that's no reason to call them Nazis. And he's like, no, they really are Nazis. I mean, there was just, and he wasn't talking about German Nazis from World War II. He was talking about Bible-believing Christians who have, a di- who have a different ideology and different politics to this particular atheist. And I was just like, man, I could see disagreeing with somebody, but labeling them as Nazis, that's just ridiculous. That is so over the line. And he was dead serious uh, in his estimation. And uh, so we have a world that's like this. And it makes sense that there is a deceiver. It makes sense that there is one who's out and about uh, seeking whom he may devour, as the New Testament puts it. I guess we didn't really get into the devil much in this episode, but it is another consideration when thinking about the fall and the current state of the world. But I just wanted to give my thoughts a little bit here at the end since Dan went a little bit short on this episode. Uh, It gave me a little extra room to ramble. Uh, But uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to the end here. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at restitutio.org or on Amazon Smile, as uh, we mentioned previously. 
Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.